Welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. You know, authority is sometimes a scary word for people. You know, we, we want people like, like leaders in government to act within the scope of their authority. But we don't want authoritarianism because that's what dictators do. Or, or we want Christian leaders to speak with authority about scripture and about the way of Jesus, but we don't want them bossing us around or trying to control us. That's what, you know, weird cult people do. Our understanding and appreciation of authority is important. Our gospel reading this morning focuses on Jesus' authority. Mark comments that, that Jesus taught as one having authority, and he contrasts Jesus with the scribes who were probably very grouchy about being upstaged, given that they were considered to be the highly literate, biblical, and legal scholars of the day. And it appears that the authority that really impressed the people was Jesus' power over unclean spirits. But Jesus' authority was grounded in something much bigger than just his skill as a teacher or, or even how he wielded his power over demonic forces. In fact, it was the unclean spirit who identified the source of Jesus' authority, that Jesus was the Holy One of God. Jesus' authority was grounded in his relationship, his devotion, and his obedience to his heavenly Father. Well, the author of Hebrews also speaks of Jesus' authority, and he frames it as an eternal high priesthood. And we are offered a, a fascinating image that describes the nature of this priesthood, the, the brief and shadowy Old Testament reference to a high priest named Melchizedek, found in Genesis chapter 14. The author of Hebrews uses the figure of Melchizedek to talk about how Jesus is our eternal high priest. Now, in, in the Jewish tradition, priests, including the high priest, came, uh, they all came from the tribe of Levi, which is why that is called the Levitical priesthood. But Jesus' family did not come from the tribe of Levi. There, his family came from the tribe of Judah. So given that, how is Jesus any kind of a priest, let alone a high priest and an eternal one at that? Well, that's where the story of Melchizedek comes in. He is described in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem, which would later be known as Israel's city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as you can see it in the word. Uh, and he's also described as a high priest. And, and in that role, he blesses Abram. And Abram, of course, was the most significant and the original patriarch of Israel. And yet, Melchizedek blesses him. Well, because we don't know anything else about Melchizedek, He's a great image for the author of Hebrews to use as a way of describing Jesus' role as the eternal high priest. Now, we would presume that Melchizedek was a real person, a real human being, 
that he came about the way all humans came about, that he had parents who bore him and raised him, and that ultimately he died as all humans do. But the text of Genesis gives us none of that information. Melchizedek just, just floats into the scene and then floats right back out again, leaving us almost no biographical information whatsoever. But what we do know of him, that king and high priest, that remains his only and everlasting descriptor. So Hebrews takes this mysterious king and high priest of Salem, one who does not come from the tribe of Levi, and he uses him as a metaphor for Jesus, a high priest who is not defined by conventional means or requirements, but comes as one who has no beginning and no end. And as such, he remains in that role forever. You know, I grew up in church traditions that were suspicious of priests, let alone high priests. You know, high priests are the ones that, you know, throw the princess into the volcano to get it to stop erupting and all that real crazy pagan stuff. Uh, in my early growing up years, my family was for a while part-time Lutheran and then part-time Presbyterian and then part-time Lutheran again. And then finally, we became full-time Nazarene folk, which was a real gift to us. And, uh, and I grew up in a neighborhood with lots of Catholic families. Most of my playmates were Catholic kids. And, and even us Protestants knew that the local parish priest was a tough and rather scary guy. Well, in the churches of my experience, we didn't have priests, we had pastors. Pastors were more like kindly shepherds, while priests acted just too big for their britches and did things that only God was supposed to do, like, like hear confessions and forgive sins and the like. And they also celebrated the Lord's Supper way too often, as though Jesus had to be sacrificed over and over. Of course, all of that was caricature. Pastors and priests really weren't as different from each other as some of us thought. Uh, certainly they were different in what they wore to church, that was for sure. Uh, but they were both ordained and they were authorized to lead people in worship. Neither of them forgave sins out of their own power, but rather spoke with authority about the assurance of God's forgiveness. And in leading their congregations in the way of Jesus, both pastors and priests were supposed to do for the people what the people needed help with, to learn about the character and intentions of God from Scripture and from their church traditions, to, to come before God in humility and repentance, serving God in worship and receiving empowerment to serve the world. But in the Bible, the high priest had a very unique and significant role one that was even more important than that of the rest of the priestly community. It was only the high priest who could enter the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And in a very important and symbolic way, the high priest represented the people to God and at the same time represented God to the people. And he had to do this routinely. He had to do it over and over and over. But Jesus, because of the offering of his very self, has no need for repeated sacrifices, and neither do we. Jesus' high priesthood is eternal. But 
if Jesus as our high priest isn't in the business of offering repeated sacrifices, then what in the world is he doing right there at the right hand of God the Father? How is he occupied? Well, Hebrews tells us that in Jesus' high priesthood, he is the mediator of a new covenant between God and his people, one that's described in reference to Jeremiah 31. Listen to this. God speaks and says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one another or to say each other, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In his high priestly work, Jesus mediates on our behalf a new covenant in which we learn that our sins are forgiven, that we are a changed people, a people who have come to know God because of Jesus and the present indwelling of the Holy Spirit, a people confident in God's grace and forgiveness and purposes. Now, you know, we've got all kinds of ways that we refer to Jesus, ways that we describe him. We, we call him Lord and Savior. We call him brother and friend, Prince of Peace, and, and so on. And these are great and wonderful and accurate things to say about Jesus. But what we need, what we really and truly need, is for Jesus to be our high priest. Now here's what I believe about this. That Jesus doesn't stand between God and humans in order to keep God from killing us. God doesn't say, you know, I would really like to destroy all those rotten people on earth because of their offensive sins and their assault on my holiness. But Jesus, since you love them and since I love you, I guess I'll cut them a break. Now I know I'm playing a little fast and loose with this here, but it's important to know that Jesus is not just our cosmic fixer who is constantly getting God to keep from giving us our just desserts. Jesus is our perfect high priest and mediator because he is simultaneously one with God the Father and he is one of us. He has taken all the brokenness and sin of our human condition into himself and then has allowed the power of evil, the power of sin, to have its way with him when he suffers and dies. And he has come through to the other side as the resurrected one who has defeated evil and death and sin and knows what it's like to be fully human and who knows what it's like to suffer. Hebrews points out that Jesus, in anticipation of his intense suffering and death that was right on the horizon, that he cried out to God and that God heard Jesus' prayers. And the answer to Jesus' prayers was that he would still walk that path of suffering, which he did. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was an obedient son and that through his suffering, he was made perfect. Now, how is that? 
how does suffering make a person perfect? As far as I can tell, suffering just mostly makes a person feel pain and just suffer. But that's not all it does. You know, for a long time, I had a rather difficult time relating to people who suffered from chronic pain. It was just hard for me to imagine pain that wasn't temporary, pain that, that couldn't be properly medicated or, or somehow resolved by surgery or something. And I wondered if the people I knew who complained about chronic pain were just chronic complainers. But then a number of years ago, I, I started experiencing pain in my right shoulder and upper arm and, and it just kept getting worse. And after several years of this, I, I could barely move my arm and, and pain became a daily experience for me. Now, ultimately, surgery did release me from that pain and restore most of my mobility. But I also began for the first time to empathize with people whose pain would never go away. Because now I, I knew something of that pain as a daily companion. You know, some might say that pain and suffering are the tools that God uses to, to educate and mature us, or, or, or uses pain and suffering to accomplish some other purpose. For a long time, C.S. Lewis believed that. He even spoke about it, taught about it, lectured about it. Until his wife died of cancer. Then his theology about suffering began to unravel. When pain and suffering became personal, assigning it a purpose seemed abhorrent to him. When Jesus suffered and when he died, there was indeed a perfection that took place in his life. But it wasn't a perfection of, of accomplishment or performance. It was a perfection of completeness. You know, if Jesus had just you know, magically skipped suffering and death and was just beamed up to heaven right before his arrest. And he, he wouldn't have fully identified with the human race. That's like cheating at the end. Suffering and death are, are part of what it means to be a human being. In his suffering, and ultimately in his death, Jesus completely and perfectly identified with us. And now he's characterized as a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who has been tested in his humanity just as we are. This high priest is one of us, just as he is one with God. And we need him. We need for Jesus to be our high priest. There's a very, very old, very ancient Christian doctrine called divinization. Uh, its roots go all the way back to the century, uh, second century. It's, it's the idea that because of God's grace that is poured out upon us through the atonement, that is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that, that somehow reconciles us to God uh, and is then evidenced by our baptism into the life of the body of Christ, that we then become increasingly one with God. That is, we become more and more drawn into the inner life of God, not losing our humanity, but gaining a deep connection with divinity. Now, some folks might call this the process of being formed in the likeness of Christ, and there's other terms as well. It's a wonderful thing to think about, 
isn't it? Being so deeply drawn into the life of God that we start seeing divinity on our own horizon. But then even throwing that out there, all the desperate and honest voices start speaking up, saying things like, well, how does this even happen when I'm out of work? Can't even figure out how to take care of my family? Or I've got three kids and two of them are sick right now. I can barely remain human, let alone divine. Or if I'm going to enjoy oneness with God, then he has got a lot of house cleaning to do in my life. I'll need to live 200 years at least for him to do that. Can you hear those kinds of voices? I, I can hear my own in there somewhere, and, and maybe you can hear yours as well today. This is part of the reason why we need Jesus to be our high priest. As Hebrews has helped us to see back in chapter two, that Jesus had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those. Who are being tested. Jesus goes before us, taking with him our shared humanity and entering the fullness of God the Father. If there is any oneness for us to enjoy with God, it doesn't come because we've worked our way into it, but because God's grace has been poured out upon us through our high priest, Jesus who is one with the Father, and yet fully understands our weaknesses, our limitations, and our sufferings, because he is also one of us. This high priestly role is not one that Jesus just conferred upon himself. He, he operated, and, and he still operates, by the authority of God the Father. God has appointed Jesus to be all that he is to us, knowing our weaknesses, knowing our sin, knowing our distractions and our illnesses and our desperations, and, and recognizing that we, the objects of his love and forgiveness, really need a high priest who understands and knows us. We really need a high priest. And in Jesus, we have the only one that we need. You know, I think it's sometimes challenging for us to get our minds around the idea that, that when it comes to God, we are empty-handed recipients, while at the same time we are full participants. All that we have received from God comes by grace. It, it comes as gift. And our oneness with God comes as invitation through the one who has lived, suffered, and died as a real human being. The ancient high priests of Israel worked through a, a whole series of sacrificial rituals in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. The people would come to this time of reverent worship empty-handed in that they were not authorized to do what the high priest was doing. However, they became full participants in the act of atonement by gathering and responding to the liturgical instructions of the high priest. The high priest didn't work 
absent of the people under his care. In capturing the image of the high priest to describe what Jesus has done for the world and what he continues to do, helps us to see that we really do need a high priest. And in Jesus, we have the one we need. We have a high priest who brings us gracious, loving, forgiving, restoring face of God. We have a high priest who is always at work on our behalf. We have a high priest who draws us into his ongoing work in the world. Our high priest is not only one of us, he is one with God and he is present with us. And Jesus, our high priest, is present with us right now. And maybe you need to hear that today. He knows what we are experiencing. He knows what we are fearing, what we are suffering. He brings all of that to God the Father on our behalf. In Jesus, we come to realize that God not only sees us, but that he knows us. And so, in this time that we have together, right now, let's bring ourselves to Jesus, our high priest. And as we do each week, we come to a point in our gathering, <clears throat> a time of telling the truth, a time of confession. It's a truth-telling experience where we speak to God the things that we've come to understand that are true about our own lives, recognizing that God always already knows all of this about us, and yet we come to God agreeing in truth. We come in humility, recognizing our weakness, and we come in confidence of his forgiveness. And so with that in mind, let's pray together this prayer of confession. Lord God, your love for humankind, present in the beginning of all things, extends throughout history and touches even my life. Your love sees failings and forgives. Your love feels pain and wipes away our tears. Your love knows grief and comforts the sorrowful. Your love sees sin and still loves the sinner. Forgive us when we fail to live lives that reflect your love. Forgive us the many times when we take for granted all that you have done for us. Transform us through your spirit and empower us to serve you this day and all days. Amen. And now, may the God of love and power forgive you and free you from your sins, heal and strengthen you by his spirit, and raise you to new life in Christ our Lord. Amen.